Often described using tautological or somewhat unsatisfactory terms, diplomacy operates as unique in international affairs, part institution and part profession. What the term diplomacy can conjure ranges from the mundane to the mythical. With the help of the DFAT Victorian State Office, the Australian Institute of International Affairs Victoria presents the Meet the Diplomat series as an attempt to probe both the institution and profession through those who have acted as diplomats. Today, I'm joined by Colin Hesseltine. Colin has had a 40-year career with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade from 1969 to 2008, which included many postings in the Asian region, and senior policy advisory positions in Australia. In 2006, he was appointed by the Australian government to head the Australian Pacific Economic Corporation, APEC, at the Secretariat in Singapore during Australia's host year in 2007. He served as Australian ambassador to the Republic of Korea from 2001 to 2005. He's also served as deputy head of mission in the Australian embassy in Beijing, from 1982 to 1985, and then again from 1988 to 1992. Following that, from 1992 to 1997, he was the director of the Australian Commerce and Industry Office in Taiwan. He's also had diplomatic appointments in Chile and Spain. Colin, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Colin, I'm wondering, firstly, in this Meet the Diplomat series, one of the things I'm really interested in is getting to hear from diplomats what they... Um, what they what they've learned from their experience. So, in your experience, what is it? What is it that you've learned from being a diplomat? <laughs> That's an interesting starting question, uh, James. Um, what have I learned from forty years of uh, being engaged in diplomacy? I, I think probably the attributes of a good di diplomat. Once you've been doing it long enough, I guess you carry on into whatever you might be doing afterwards. Mm. Um, and I think a large part of it is obviously establishing relationships with people, um, learning to present cases in a way that the message might be tough, but delivering it in a way that is um, kind of acceptable and not seen as um, being too combative. Sometimes you need to be tough in diplomacy, but I think it's always the main lesson is that to deliver that in a in a kind of civilised and, and calm way and establishing the kind of trust with the people you're dealing with. Uh, I think that's um, probably one of the most important um, important lessons learnt. Uh, traditionally, I mean, when you say that someone is being diplomatic, it's often used in a pejorative way in the sense that they're not saying what they think and they're being excessively polite. Uh, I don't think that's really how a, a good diplomat needs to operate. I think they... Uh, have to basically uh, at times convey tough messages, but to do it in a in a way that is persuasive and uh, and calm and uh, basically civilized. Mm. Well, and, and that and that's it's a really interesting point. I think that that notion of civility and of conveying um, tough message respectful way. I think that's sort of how at least students of international relations see diplomacy. I think um, how much how much of that. Um, is there in being a diplomat? How much of uh, of the job is sort of negotiation and uh, working with counterparts, and how much of it is more 
paperwork, more actually working within the public service. Well, when you're um, obviously when you're overseas, working as a diplomat overseas, uh, a large part of the job is um, is dealing with people, uh, dealing with people in uh, your host government's um, uh, government agencies. Um, but also goes beyond that, dealing with business, with universities, civil society, civil society in general, and uh, and building up those contacts and relationships is is absolutely uh, well. That is that is the essence of the job, really. Uh, the paperwork you describe, well, I mean, obviously you you report back uh, uh, home, and uh, that can be done in written reports or can be done uh, in all sorts of uh, media these days. But, um, you know, it's, it, it is so much about establishing relationships and people that, you know, will give you credibility and that will have credibility when you report what they say back home. Mm. Mm. And I think, and that's, that kind of brings me to the, to the sort of crux of where I want to take this discussion, which is as a diplomat with such vast experience as you had, especially in the, in the Asian arena, I'm wondering whether you can talk about the different styles of diplomacy that you've seen in different settings and the different, um, the different ways in which diplomatic conversations take place across Asia. Well, James, I, um, I actually, it's an interesting question. Actually, I don't think the difference is all that great. I mean, obviously, uh, each country and the officials that work for the governments in those countries uh, have different backgrounds. But when it all comes down to it, it's... Uh, it's, it's not all that dissimilar. I mean, whether you're talking to officials and dealing with them in Beijing or in Seoul or in Singapore or wherever it is, um, you're there to, um, you know, to convey a message, to uh, pursue Australian interests, in, as it was in my case, or defend Australian interests. Um, and the other side obviously has its interests. So it, in that sense, it's, you know, the, the, um, the actual form of, uh, of, of the interchange doesn't vary much, I don't think, country from country. I mean, obviously, some countries will have a tougher position um, that'll make uh, the negotiations or the discussions that much more difficult. But at the end of the day, uh, if you like, the the format and the process is, is not all that dissimilar. Mm. Mm. Well, and I, I think that that is an interesting... It's an interesting insight, um, given given the way that different uh, different Asian countries are, are portrayed in the media. It's interesting to note the similarities in their diplomatic dispositions um, in dealing with yourself. Um, I, I, having been having been the head of mission in Taiwan for Australia, um, are there constant difficulties unique to conducting diplomacy in a state like that in in such an awkward international position? No, interestingly, James, um, you know, we conducted ourselves, uh, although we were described as an unofficial embassy, mm. um, we conducted ourselves in, in much the same way as we would um, uh, in any country where we had a normal diplomatic relationship. We would deal with the, uh, the foreign ministry. We would have meetings with them. Uh, while I was there, for example, we were negotiating Taiwan's uh, uh, accession to the World Trade Organization and the process for that was absolutely the same as it would have been uh, in any other country where we were uh, doing uh, such a thing. So no, it didn't really, um, it didn't really uh, offer any great difficulties. Obviously, uh, you know, we didn't have the range of uh, high-level visitors in Taiwan as we uh, would in other countries. I think at that time the, the general policy was that we would have one 
ministerial visit from Australia a year, wow. uh, that with other countries where you'd have them every year, every every month or every week. Um, so you know, in that sense, the um, you know the, the way diplomacy was conducted was a bit different. But uh, when it was all said and done, it was much the same. And I guess we had to be a bit we had to be a bit careful in the way we presented ourselves and the things we'd say. We had to uh, um, obviously abide by and adhere to um, Australian government policy towards. Uh, towards China and towards Taiwan, but um, that didn't really, in practice on the ground, offer any great difficulties. Yeah, that's, yeah, interesting, interesting. And I guess, I guess it's just one of those, one of those um, interesting international scenarios to be in and having seen it firsthand, it's a really incredible experience. It must be, um, is, there, is there a sense of um, weight that you feel when you're the head of a mission? Is there a sense of real responsibility for Australia's place in the world when you're ahead of a mission? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, being the head of any um, office, I guess, um, carries responsibilities and obligations. But, um, look, you know, we know what, uh, when, when we go overseas, we know what Australian foreign policy is. We know what the policy is towards the, the country that we're accredited to. Um, and diplomacy, you know, dipl diplomacy doesn't make foreign policy, uh, Diplomacy is the business of um, managing relationships with other countries. So it's the it's the job of implementing the foreign policy. So you know you you go out there and you um, and to the best of your ability you um, you do that. You uh, as I say as I said earlier, sometimes you know you have to deliver tough messages and you have to be um, fairly harsh in what you're saying. But as I said earlier, you do it in the in the best way you uh, assess will get your message across. Um, and I guess as the head of mission, of course, you, you have the ultimate responsibility for the way um, uh, the diplomacy is conducted on the ground um, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the country where you are. Because diplomacy now, and, and not just now, but in many years now, with the advances of technology, diplomacy is conducted by many people. Uh, it's not just the diplomats that we send to work in our embassies abroad. I mean, every time a, a government minister, for example, uh, makes some statement or gives a, a media interview and uh, makes comments which can have some bearing on foreign policy. Um, and I have to say, it does happen that um, sometimes the first you hear about uh, maybe some new nuance or some amendment in foreign policy towards the country where you are, the first you hear about that is, uh, you know, when you when you read or hear the media, uh, and that can that can pose uh, um, you know particular challenges uh, for a diplomat. But you know that's that's what they're paid to do. And is that is that kind of the biggest difference that you've seen? Obviously, obviously, someone like yourself with so much experience um, needs to spend years actually having that experience. Is that is that change in technology, that ability for ministers to speak in that way, that that ability for um, for government to shift policy um, in that in that way and speak on a speak on a case is that the biggest change that's happened in diplomacy across your career? I would say, yeah, for sure. I'd say the um, the advances in technology have certainly, I would think, have had the biggest impact on the way diplomacy is conducted. I mean, obviously, the issues changed, and also. Um, the extent of the of the foreign policy and therefore diplomatic agenda much now was uh, 
four years ago, and all sorts of issues, uh, global issues um, that you know we really didn't get much involved in uh, uh, 40 years ago. It's a much much broader agenda now. So you know that has changed, but the actual um, can, in the actual conduct of diplomacy, the technological technological changes uh, have had the greatest impact. I mean, as I say, you can the immediacy of uh, events, the immediacy of uh, policy announcements. Um, I mean, want to take a, an extreme case now. How, how would you like to be a U.S. diplomat abroad, mm. and uh, the first you hear about some new policy uh, change affecting the country where you are is a tweet from the president. Um, uh, that's an extreme case. Fortunately, in Australia, we don't <laughs> we don't have that extreme. But you know, it can happen even in Australia, where a minister will um, at a media conference or somewhere will make a statement, uh, which will imply you know some changes in nuance or even changes in substance to the policy that you have up to that point currently been operating under. Uh, and that, as I say, that um, that uh, does pose uh, particular challenges. Uh, but um, yeah, that said, you know, you, you deal with that. Um, most uh, younger diplomats now have grown up with that uh, technological um, uh, situation, and so it's um, it's just something they live with. Mm. Yeah, in interesting. It's it's an interesting um, kind of change to be able to trace um, through throughout that sort of four decades of experience. Um, well, I might just mention that in my first posting uh, in nineteen seventy in uh, Santiago, uh, Chile, uh, which was at a time of incredible revolutionary change, a uh, uh, very exciting time to be there. But we hardly ever had telephone conversations with the department uh, back home because the connections just weren't any good. So it was very, very difficult to uh, have a telephone conversation. You had to shout. You know, there'd be crackle and static. Um, and even the cable communications, uh, the tech technology was, uh, you know, so by current standards was uh, so um, an antiquated uh, that messages were usually sent fairly short because they had to be decoded and that was often done uh, semi-manually. It all took time. So the whole business of communication um, with your home government uh, was a much different uh, process from now where it's immediate. Get on the phone now if you've got a question you want to ask. Um, so that, that, that has been by far the biggest single change uh, that I've seen in, uh, uh, since the start of my career. And does that, does, that sense of, um, uh, does that sense of being able to communicate so efficiently now with, with, your, with Canberra mean that diplomats are, are less free to, to, um, to communicate as they see fit? Do they, do they feel more tethered to Canberra now than they have done in the past, do you think? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, if you go back and, you know, history way before uh, the, the time I joined the Department of External Affairs is one man where there are many stories of diplomats uh, really doing their own thing and um, communications might take months to, uh, to get to and fro by, uh, from between the embassy and the home government. But, no, I think uh, certainly the time uh, that I've been uh, was in the job from 1969 onwards. Uh, I think you always had a sense that you're there to, um, you know, to, to carry out and implement uh, the government's policy. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, anyone who um, decides to uh, freelance a bit or 
make policy on the run, uh, I think they're going to lose their effectiveness very quickly. And, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely vital as a, as, a, as a diplomat that you instill trust and credibility. And it's a two-way street. You've got to do that, obviously, uh, with your, um, your host government, because if they don't give you any credibility and they don't trust you, then they're not really going to talk to you very much. So that's a basic. But you've also got to have the same credibility back home, because if you don't, then no one's going to take any notice of what you say. As I said before, um, diplomats, the, the job of diplomacy is not to make foreign policy, it's to implement it. But clearly, diplomats have a, uh, a role in the formulation of foreign policy and the contributions they make, the advice they make, the recommend recommendations they make, and uh, whether governments accept that or not is up to the government. But you know, if you have credibility back home, then obviously your views will be much more taken into account. Mm -hmm. Well, a large a large part of your of your service um, of your public service in Australia has been focused on China, um, and I'm wondering whether you can comment about um, the way the relationship sits, or um, or how you've seen the tracing of that relationship with China across across the span of, uh, of your experience in that relationship? Yeah, well, it, uh, my time in China, which began in um, 1982, uh, was really just, just after the reform process began. I mean, Deng Xiaoping uh, announced his um, policy of opening up an economic reform in December 1978. Uh, I arrived in 1982, and so they'd only... They're only just beginning. Um, so it was a time of great excitement. Uh, they'd come out of the Cultural Revolution. People were still kind of reeling from that. But there was this sense of um, perhaps something good was going to happen. And it was a very um, exciting time to be there and talking to officials, although they were still nervous in dealing with uh, foreign diplomats because of the past. Nonetheless, they could see that things were beginning to open up. And so... You know, during the, t the postings I had in Beijing of 1982 uh, through to um, 1992 was really a, a golden era in our relationship, I think. It was uh, the time when um, uh, it was really begun by the visit of, um, of Prime Minister Bob Hawke, uh, which would have been, what, 1983, um, when he made a strategic decision to develop a really strategic uh, complementary economic relationship with China. And things really changed from then on. I mean, we were um, really doing some very exciting things. It was all new. Um, the reform process was still um, in its infancy. Uh, a lot of things were policies were being tested. Um, uh, the Chinese went about it in a very methodical, systematic way. It was extraordinary. They didn't just sort of announce a policy and implement it nationwide. They do it bit by bit in different parts of the country and test it and, and move forward a bit. And so to be there at that time and developing this uh, rather new type of relationship China, with China was um, extremely exciting. We had great access. Um, you know, we would be seeing premiers and vice premiers, uh, you know, on a fairly regular basis, we would get in uh, to see them. Um, so it was, uh, it was a professionally a very satisfying time. Um, well, 
fast forward to now, um, I think we have obviously have a very different relationship and I think the job of our diplomats in China now um, would be very different and much, much more difficult than uh, the time I was there. I think just getting access now, I doubt if uh, many Australian diplomats um, uh, in China these days would get the access to senior uh, levels right up to the premier, vice premier level that, uh, that we used to get. Mm. Uh, that's a reflection of a number of things, um, apart from anything else, uh, China's own relationships and foreign policy has expanded so much, so they only have so much time to devote to any one country. But clearly there have been um, a lot of tensions in the relationship and uh, um, we haven't had uh, the level of ministerial visits that we've had in the past. The Prime Minister hasn't made a visit uh, uh, for a very quite a long time. So it, it would be a difficult job. I think it would be one of the most difficult jobs for an Australian diplomat at the moment. When when you were there, what what gave you that access? Why why did the Chinese um, uh, give such great access to you and your colleagues? Well, I, th I think in large part it was because they could see that um, Australia had a lot to offer in terms of the supply of... Uh, uh, resources and energy products and when Bob Hawke went on his first visit and sat down with Premier Charles who I think is one of the great men of uh, China uh, talked about uh, developing this uh, relationship of economic complementarity beginning in the iron and steel industry that's where we began um, Chinese uh, actually got quite excited about this and, um, you know, it, the message sort of flowed down throughout the bureaucracy. So doors would be open for us. Um, I would play tennis with vice premiers. Wow. I, don't think any, I don't think any Australian diplomat now would be playing tennis with a, uh, with a vice premier. Um, we had, I personally had very good access uh, with a senior foreign ministry official that I first developed uh, uh, when he was posted in, uh, in Canberra. Uh, and I carried that through and uh, when I got to Beijing and he was in a senior position by that and he, uh, you know, he appreciated, uh, I think, the, um, the way I had dealt with him in the past and uh, he would open all sorts of doors for us. Uh, it was uh, you know, professionally very satisfying, as I've just said. I don't think we would have that. I don't think any Australian diplomat would have that kind of um, access now. Mm. Well, and I, I think that's that's a really interesting interesting point to note is that difference in in access. Um, and is it just that is it just that we weren't able to continue on that sense of that that sense of trust? Was there a was there a breaking um, of 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 diplomatic relations that that had built on that trust, or is it just that uh, that China's expansion has been so total? that there's now just too much to deal with? Well, you know, a number of big things have happened, um, and not just in China. I think the way the world, uh, in particular uh, the United States, perceives China uh, have undergone big changes. And I think, um, you know, during the, um, during the, during the 90s, uh, uh, early 2000s, um, you know, that sort of fairly cooperative relationship we had um, continued. Uh, obviously, since uh, Xi Jinping has been uh, head of the party and, uh, and running the country, uh, things have changed. He has adopted a much more um, aggressive style in terms of the way he runs uh, China internally. 
And uh, this is and this has a follow through into a lot of its international activities. Now, these are perceived um, in many countries and in many parts of many countries, including many parts in this country, as being very threatening. Um, and uh, people are responding uh, uh, accordingly. And in turn, China will uh, respond in its way. So I think we've just had um, a, 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 you know, a steady or not so steady, it's been quite fast downturn in that relationship and the way um, countries are perceiving each other. I've always um, taken the view that, um, that China is uh, it's going to grow, it's going to be big, um, it's going to do things that we don't like, um, but it's just too important for us to um, try and develop some sort of negative relationship with. Uh, that's a view that not, it's not necessarily all that popular these days in, in many parts of Australia. Um, many people, I think, uh, tend to see China as an existential threat um, to our way of life and to our values um, and that we should act accordingly, we should push back um, and so on. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that the Chinese, who uh, I always see as, despite the fact that they are growing rapidly and are becoming quite powerful, are still very insecure. Um, at times they can be almost paranoid in the way they react um, to outside um, actions and criticisms and so on. And so you have this kind of, um, you know, spiral downwards and both sides uh, are really, um, I think, misunderstanding what the other is about. This is unfortunate. Um, I don't know where, where it's all going to finish, uh, but I don't think we are in a very healthy state at this, at this point. Of course, the um, events in the United States, the way they have uh, acted towards China is, uh, is, is compounding that. Um, but, um, you know, I take the view that um, um, what China is doing at this stage, at least, is, is essentially defensive. Um, and that the, the Xi Jinping's essential goal is to make China a great civilization, as it has been in the past, make China great again. <laughs> and the only way to um, he sees to do that is through the strength and unity of the Communist Party. And so he has exacted uh, a lot of uh, quite strict, severe um, actions back home to um, in China to. Uh, uh, to reduce dissent and uh, make sure everybody toes the line. Um, this is the sign to me of a, of a very insecure uh, regime, despite the size of it and the, and the growing power of it. Um, what you know, Chinese fear more than anything is chaos. Uh, and they've got good reason for that, given the history over the last thousand years and more. Um, now, it's up to us, and this is the art, the art of good diplomacy also, is to kind of put yourself in the, in the other side's uh, shoes. Try and understand, you know, what is driving them? Where are they coming from? That doesn't mean you accept it, what they're doing, but at least understand it. Um, and if you don't understand it uh, and you uh, attribute incorrect motives, objectives, then that will lead you to uh, mistakes in your foreign policy and in the conduct of your diplomacy. Uh, so I tend to think that's uh, that's where we are right now. Um, that uh, a lot of misperceptions about what China is on about, um, and uh, not seeing 
We've seen China as a basically an expansionist power that really wants to not only dominate the region but the world, which is uh, and and to undermine our values here in countries like Australia and elsewhere. Uh, to me, is getting it wrong. Uh, I think what, uh, um, what what China is trying to do uh, is to ensure that its people um, adhere to the Communist Party, accept its importance, accept that it'll, it, it, it's, it's, its power to rule, and uh, not to undermine democracies or overturn them. There's, there's never anything I've seen that would indicate to me that China's... Uh, aim is to uh, overturn liberal democracies like Australia. But you hear plenty of people here talking about uh, how the Chinese Communist Party wants to undermine our values. Uh, I don't see that. You, you see actions uh, in Australian universities and the actions of Chinese students. Um, but I think you've got to see that in terms of uh, the Chinese government sees a lot of students students abroad. Uh, it doesn't want them returning with all sorts of um, ideas of liberal democracy and uh, and uh, trying to sort of put those into practice back in China when they get home. Um, so I think what they're trying to do in trying to control students, Chinese students at our universities is very much uh, this sort of defensive posture relating to their security back home. Now, of course, in doing that, that can threaten the way our universities operate. And uh, if um, you know, if uh, universities are, are feeling in any way um, obliged to um, uh, go along with uh, Chinese objections, uh, uh, things that are happening in universities, that does have the risk of undermining our values, and that's up to us to push back on that and we have the universities themselves should be doing this, our intelligence uh, security agencies could look after that. But I don't see it as a uh, any kind of existential threat. Mm. Yeah, well, it, uh, really interesting, a really interesting analysis from someone who's clearly spent a, a lot of time around this. I'm wondering about, um, given given your role as Australia's ambassador to, um, to the Republic of Korea from 2001 to 2005, um, was there was there evidence of this um, of 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 China's role of of the fear of China's expansion even even at the turn of the century? Was there a sense that in Korea there was this sort of expanding China that needed to be corralled or or even thought of as um, pushed back against? No, not really. I mean, um, <laughs> Korea, is, uh, as you would appreciate, has had a, a very interesting and long chequered history uh, with China um, and also with Japan. Um, oh. Korea is, uh, well, South Korea, nestled in between Japan and the East China Sea and North Korea and then China um, as well, uh, is in a very interesting position. Um, I think there are, there's always concerns about China, um, and given Korea's history with China, you would expect that. But I think they, you know, saw it in a fairly positive light, and I, they saw it as they see China, of course, certainly when I was there, as uh, absolutely key to um, settling issues with North Korea. Um, so to the extent they were um, uh, very uh, prepared to um, you know, sit down with the Chinese and. Uh, talk through issues and, and look for a constructive role. 
Um, I mean, they had a much more uh, kind of um, uh, hostile relation many times with Japan because of the more recent history uh, yeah. with Japan. You'd sort of find this, uh, you're in a certain situation where uh, Korea is, is actually having more um, uh, acrimonious um, exchanges with Japan, which is a uh, you know, a friend and ally of um, of Australia's, um, and with China, really soft peddling. Um, but you know, I think the the Koreans will always be wary of, uh, of China, but they also understand that it's um, it's so key uh, to their own security. And I think you find that in a lot of Asian countries. I think um, you will find that um, most Asian countries, uh, whatever concerns and fears they have about China will conduct their relations, um, not in a loud, noisy, um, acrimonious way. They will play it very, very um, carefully and, and mm-hmm. uh, quite, um, quite sensibly in, in most cases. Yeah, interesting. That is, it's a really interesting insight. Um, changing, changing, tact ever so, uh, changing tack ever so slightly, um, from, you, you've spent time as a first assistant secretary in the North Asia division. In, in DFAT um, at, at between 98 and 2001. I, I'm wondering whether you could talk about what, what a senior position within DFAT looks like when you're not overseas, when you're, when you're in fact in, inside Australia, in Canberra. What, what, does, what does that kind of a role look like? Well, I guess, you know, it is a, uh, to go back to your uh, uh, opening comment, I guess it's, there's a much more um, kind of paper pushing role, if you like. Um, but um, no, you've got the you've got the minister, uh, your ministers. You've got uh, you know the government apparatus there. Uh, so you work you know, obviously with a, a much more um, structured, uh, uh, closed environment. But you know the, the job there is to um, uh, provide the inputs into government foreign policy making, uh, providing the advice. Um, giving the instructions uh, to your diplomats uh, abroad, um, answering a lot of questions in, um, to, from the government uh, through the Senate estimates process. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's an interesting job in its own right. It's, um, I always found uh, the job overseas much more interesting than the job back in Canberra because you, you know, you sort of, uh, you, you had that kind of uh, freedom of, uh, operation at least overseas, which you tended not to have uh, in Canberra. But uh, the Canberra role is obviously a vital one, and I always found it um, uh, very stimulating. And uh, you know, the sense that you are um, directly feeding into the policy making process is always uh, a stimulating one. Mm, mm. And I think that then that leads me on to, to to my last sort of point that I wanted to talk about, which was which was your role in APEC in the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation um, as, as the head of the secretariat in Singapore. Um, where, do you, where do you see APEC's role in, in the Asia Pacific? APEC is, uh, it's, a, it's been a good organisation. Australia uh, obviously was instrumental in its formation uh, many years ago. Um, it, it does a lot of of good work it's it's not work that is very much heralded it's it's not um yeah not a lot of stuff that's going to um you know make the headlines in the media i mean it's uh, but it's uh, and it's and it's run on con- on consensus lines so everybody has to agree which makes uh, 
the process of decision making uh, slow and tortuous, but I think it, you know, it has provided um, a lot of very useful economic uh, kind of reform and policy uh, guidance to um, the developing country members of APEC. Um, it's been a it's been a it's been a useful uh, organisation. Uh, whether it's got as much pull and impact now as it did um, in earlier years. Uh, I'm I'm not sure about it, and, and I haven't actually been involved in APEC for, for quite a few years now. Um, but you always uh, you always had that kind of disconnect between the APEC leaders meeting once a year and the actual work that APEC does. I mean, the leaders meeting was an opportunity for leaders to um, get together and uh, and discuss uh, whatever issues were, were of interest at that time. It actually never really had that much to do with the real work of APEC, this <laughs> disconnect between the leaders um, meeting and uh, and what uh, APEC was actually doing. But look, it, 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 look, it's been a, and there are a number of regional organisations, APEC is one of them, and uh, in the economic uh, policy field, I think it's, uh, it's, it's performed uh, credibly and usefully. Um, as I say, whether that role is continuing to the same extent now, um, I'm not sure, but uh, you know, it's, it's it's part of the network of regional organisations, and um, you know, is 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 to be commended. Mm. I think to 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 finish off, then I kind of I wanted to talk more about more about your your experience. You you've been through um, language training yourself, formalised language training. I, I'm wondering whether you could talk about what it's like to experience that sort of formal language training that you experience so, that some of some people experience as a as a foreign service officer, what it's like kind of going through that experience and then, and then going and actually implementing that overseas. Mm, well, um, you know, learning and trying to learn a language uh, like uh, Mandarin is just hard work. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and I don't think um, I ever really got to the point where I would work professionally in uh, in Chinese, and I don't know many um, diplomats that did. Um, I think you use your language, uh, you know, in um, non-sort of negotiation, uh, non-official environments. But I think when you go into the foreign ministry uh, and you've got to put a position or get information about a Chinese position, um, I would never use uh, Chinese for that. Uh, you know, you've just got to be so correct and so precise. Um, there's no room for, for error. So, um, you know, I and I think even the um, the members of our embassy that had better Chinese than I did, um, uh, uh, as far as I know, never uh, did their business in Chinese. Uh, it's just um, too risky. I remember my first posting to China and the British ambassador, Sir Percy Craddock, um, who was a very eminent Sinologist and a, a superb Chinese. He later, he was back in London uh, working directly with uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, had a lead role in the negotiations on uh, 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 Britain handing over Hong Kong to uh, China. Yes. I remember in a train, we are heading off somewhere or other, we just happened to be in the same train together. And he said to me, he never, ever used uh his Chinese language uh, skills in any official discussions or negotiations. Wow. He said it wasn't worth the risk. You have to be 
absolutely precise. Um, so I took that as a, a pretty uh, important lesson for the, someone of his experience. And I th- and I think a lesson that we can pass on pass on to everyone listening to this as well. That's it's it, that's a fascinating fascinating insight. And then I, I think lastly, just to just to finish off the dis- this discussion, which has been fantastic and quite wide reaching, I'm wondering whether out of out of all the jobs that you've had across across your foreign service, I'm wondering if if you had a favourite at all. Well, uh, James, I um, actually had the good fortune, every posting I went to uh, was really fascinating and interesting. And for some reason, it was just the way things happened, uh, invariably found myself in countries at a time of, uh, of, of great change or uh, sometimes turbulent, sometimes traumatic. Um, and uh, I think I got a bit of a reputation for being in, always being in places where something went wrong. Uh, but I'd have to say uh, that, you know, the, the China experience, two postings in China during the 80s, early 90s, and that uh, was really the, the most fascinating. And, you know, seeing where we are now, looking back on those years, uh, it really was an extraordinarily interesting time to be there. Uh, you know, that first part I described earlier in the early 80s, when there was that sort of sense of euphoria and people lightening up and thinking that, you know, some good things were going to happen. Deng Xiaoping had said uh, to get rich is glorious. All sorts of things started to, to happen, flow from that. And then when I went back uh, uh, in um, uh, 1988, uh, after uh, two years uh, back in Australia, uh, to go back and just in those short years to see that tensions were building up, that people were feeling unhappy that uh, some people had got rich um, and there was a lot of corruption and a lot of unhappiness. And uh, all of this, of course, you know, culminated in the, uh, uh, the protests and the demonstrations um, on Tiananmen Square, which uh, ended in tra- tragedy and tears uh, 31 years ago, yesterday, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and seeing those sort of changes... Um, in such a short space of time and then looking back at what's happened since. You know, that really um, was a, uh, an extraordinarily interesting time, fascinating time in my career. Mm. Well, I, and, and I think that, that, that leaves us at a, very, um, at a very nice round point because I want to thank you for your, for your insights today and for, and for your comments on such a wide range of, 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 uh, of experiences that you've had um, and, uh, and your own interpretation of, of things is marvellous to hear about. And I think you've given, you've given everyone listening to this a really, a really great insight on what it's like to be perhaps a diplomat who finds themselves in situations when everything goes wrong in your postings. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, James. Thank you. Thank you. 